Good morning, Bridge. How are we doing, guys? You simply must testify. Say the word, testify. Joe, a uh, friend of mine, uh, is a big guy. Joe's one of those guys uh, who just, you just know he's powerful. You just, he could go for world's strongest man if he wanted. Just one of those kind of guys. He told me a story one time uh, that he was a construction site supervisor and a plumber came up to him one day and he was upset about something and he just went after Joe. And he's just going after him and after him and after him. And Joe said, I just let him talk it all out. And then I leaned over him and said, I will snap you like a twig. <laughs> And the plumber plucked his head and walked away. I mean, that was just Joe, just an intimidating kind of character, but cuddly as a teddy bear and came to, to Christ in middle age. He was in his 40s when he came to Christ. Joe came bursting into my office one day a few years ago, and he was visibly shaken, visibly upset. He had just come back from vacation. He'd gone home for the first time. Uh, since he had come to Christ and, of course, in the, in the process of going home and getting with friends and family and that sort of thing, eventually, after catching up on all kinds of stuff, he told them that he'd given his life to Christ. And they started asking some questions that intimidated him immediately. He didn't know what to say. He ultimately uh, cut the conversation short and, and, and changed the subject. And then he came back, and he's visibly upset. He's shaken. He burst into my office and said, Pastor Jim, what is wrong with me? I panicked. I didn't know what to say. Am I even saved? If I really love Jesus, wouldn't I have been glad to tell them everything about what's been going on in my life? And I don't know what to do. And that big, burly, powerful man sat in my office and wept like a baby because he felt like a failure. What he didn't realize is that, yes, I was listening with compassion and I cared so much about Joe, still do. Maybe you're watching online. Good to see you, Joe, if you are. But, uh, uh, what he didn't know is that I was sitting there feeling like a failure too. Because you understand my job was to help him to prepare for that moment. And I had failed Joe. In fact, there were two passages of scripture that kept going through my mind while he's talking and pouring his story out. Two passages of scripture. Let me share them with you. First Peter chapter 3 verse 15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect. Just be ready, be prepared to answer, here's why I have hope. Here's my story. This is who I was. I've met Jesus. This is who I'm becoming. And I have hope that the future is even brighter because of this relationship I've established with Jesus. That's the call of God on all of our lives. The second passage that's rolling through my head is Ephesians 4.11. So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to do what? What does it say? To equip his people for works of service. So Joe's job was what? Be prepared to give an answer, to give a reason for the hope. My job was what? To prepare him for that moment. And while Joe felt very much like a failure for not being prepared for that moment, I felt very much a failure for not having equipped him for that moment. So as I reflected on uh, what would be a wonderful thing to do during this couple of weeks 
between our Psalm 23 series that I thoroughly enjoyed. Many of you have made some wonderful comments. Appreciate it so much. Many people came to Christ during that series, both here and, and online, and we're thankful for what God is doing. But th between that series and July 4th and the series that will kick off after that, uh, I said, what can I use these two Sundays for that would be incredibly helpful? And, and while I'm praying about that and thinking about that, Joe popped in my mind, and that event with Joe popped in my mind. And so that's exactly what I want to do today and next Sunday in a little mini-series that I'm simply calling Testify, the Fifth Gospel. All four of our location pastors are doing this over these two weeks and spending this time in our locations. So let me explain the, the name of the series first. Testify, of course, we'll look at it in a minute. But we, by the fifth gospel, what we're saying is that the four gospels are simply the story of Jesus through the lens, through the experience of Guys that knew him and were there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John told the story of Jesus from their personal perspective, from their personal experience, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit. The fifth gospel then is the story of Jesus simply through your lens, through your experience, through my lens, through my experience. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that your experience is equal to Scripture. not saying that. But I am going to say that more people will read your story about Jesus long before they read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's story about Jesus. And so our story becomes critical to everybody's journey, including our own. So in these two Sundays, I just simply want to give you some tools. I want to help you so that when you find yourself in Joe's place, you won't come away feeling like a failure, feeling awful. You will, in fact, been prepared to share your story, and you will, you will shine. And then, of course, we'll all stand before God in the end and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Is that worth a couple Sundays investing a little bit of time in? I want to prepare you for that, so let's get into it, okay? The word testify by definition simply is to make a statement based on personal knowledge, to make a statement based on personal knowledge. Another word for testify is the word witness. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus had, uh, had given his life for us. He'd risen from the grave. He'd been seen by 500 witnesses uh, during that period, and, and now it's time for him to go prepare heaven for us. And he says to his disciples and all that gathered that day, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In your local hometown, Jerusalem, in the surrounding area of Judea, to the cross-cultural ministries, uh, cross-cultural peoples, Samaria, and all over the entire world. You will be my witnesses. So kind of think about that for a minute. This idea of, of testify and witness, what, what comes to mind when you think about that? For, for me, I think about a courtroom setting. So kind of picture a courtroom setting. You've been called to testify in a trial. You've been called to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And when that happens, you become a, you become a witness for the prosecution or a witness for the defense. Does that make sense? So the only real question is, how good a witness are you? I mean, you've been called to testify. You've become a witness. That's a stated fact. You got a subpoena. You have no choice. You're going to go. The only question is, will you be a good witness or not? And what I want to do this morning in the few minutes we've got is I want to give you the three requirements to being a good witness. Just simple three requirements to being a good witness, whether you're in a courtroom setting or you're in the setting that we're talking about, testify the fifth 
gospel. First of all, this is real simple stuff, but I want to challenge your thinking a little bit. The first one is you've got to have something to share. You just got to have something of value to share. When it comes to to that subject of sharing something of value about Jesus, my mind goes to John, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. They were close. They were incredibly close. John, of course, was one of the 12 disciples. He did life with Jesus for uh, more than three years. He wrote an account of his time with Jesus on earth that we now refer to as the Gospel of John. If if you want to know about the love of the Lord and if you want to know about John's love for Jesus and Jesus' love for John, read the gospel of John because it's very clear. But then later on, John writes three very short letters to the early churches across the known world at that point. And I love the way John starts his first letter. So here we are in 1 John. He's starting out this series of letters, and here's how he starts. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. It's on the screen. You brought your Bible. You can look it up. I've given it to you in the North Carolina version or whatever NCV stands for. New century, okay. Uh, Here we go. Read it with me, all right? One, two, three, go. We write you now about what has always existed, which we have heard, we have seen with our own eyes, we have looked at, and we have touched with our hands. Now, (coughs) that's a simple little passage, but I want to unpack that a minute because I want you to give some thought to it. I want you to actually lean into it and let it speak into your spirit, not just in your head. Of course, he's talking about who? The one who's always existed. He's talking about Jesus because Jesus uh, was slain before the foundations of the world. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were a part of creation. Jesus has always existed. He is God. He will always exist. And so he's talking about Jesus himself, but he's writing not in theological terms. I mean, he gets the theology established, but, but he moves beyond the theological expressions of it and gets deeply personal in the way he talks about it. And so first thing he says is uh, he and the other disciples have, what do he say? Heard Jesus. Now think about that for just a minute. He was there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Just put yourself in the moment and imagine Jesus himself saying, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, so they, for they shall be filled. He actually heard Jesus express those words. He was there when Jesus knelt down and started writing in the sand. We don't know exactly what he wrote, but it was enough that the legalist who wanted to stone this woman who'd been caught in an adulterous act scattered to the four winds. And then he looked at the woman and he said, where are your accusers, woman? And she said, well, I don't have any. He said, well, I don't condemn you either. Just stop doing what you were doing. Quit sinning. They were there. They witnessed that event. They were in that moment. They heard him say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then what's the second thing he said? He said, and we've seen Jesus. We've seen who he is. We've seen what he's done. John is saying, I saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. I was there when they rolled the stone away and everybody said, man, he's been dead four days. I mean, kind of stinking mouth now. You you really want to do this? And Jesus said, come on, Lazarus, get out of there. And I said, "I, I saw that man get up and walk out of that tomb. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. I, I was there in the middle of a storm in the Sea of Galilee when, when Jesus said to Peter, 
why don't you come out here and walk on the water with me? I saw Peter as he swung his leg over the side of the boat, and I'm kind of panicking a little bit. What's going to happen here? And I saw Peter walking on the water because Jesus invited him to do. So I, I saw the empty tomb. I saw him when he died. And I thought my heart would burst right along with I thought I'd die right there right along with him. But then three days later, I went to the tomb and he was gone. He was alive. He was risen. I witnessed that with my own eyes, John said. And then he says, I've looked at. Wait a minute. What, what we just said? He, he saw. What, what's the difference? Looked at is a far different word. It's theogamai that, that means, uh, in the Greek, it, it means to gaze in wonder. He didn't just see what Jesus did. He couldn't take his eyes off of the man. He had this kind of awe, this wonder, this amazement at who Jesus is and what he was doing and the acts and the words and, and everywhere they went. John just fixed his eyes on Jesus and he said, I looked at him, I gazed at him, I, I pondered him, I studied him, I considered him. I couldn't take my eyes off of him. And then he goes to say, and this first time I read this with meaning, when it became just kind of a word from the Lord from my heart, it's when he said, our hands have touched him. As I said, John was more than just one of the 12 disciples. He was in that inner circle of three. In fact, he was Jesus' perhaps closest friend. It was John that Jesus said from the cross, John, behold your mother, mama. John's going to take care of you from now on. I mean, that's how much he loved John. He entrusted his mother <coughs> into John's care. That's how close they were. And John said, not only did I hear him and see him and gaze on him, but my hands have touched him. Can you? Can you imagine Jesus saying, give me a hug? And you hug him and he hugs you back? That's what John's saying. The immensity of that just kind of washed over me this week and I wondered if I could even say it to you today and contain the emotions of, that, of imagining that moment that we will have one day, but until that day we only have our hearts and our imaginations and the presence of God in our lives. The question <coughs> of the day, though, is, is what do you do when you have those experiences? I mean, when you've heard him and you've seen him and you've gazed on him and you've actually experienced his presence, what does that do to you and what do you do about it? John goes on in that little letter Verses 3 and 4 and tells us what he did. He said, we announce to you that we have seen and heard because we want you also to have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. We write this to you so you may be full of 
joy. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, man, by having heard him and seen him and gazed on him and touched him and experienced him, we are so full of this. We cannot keep it to ourselves. We cannot contain it. It's like overflowing out of us, and we want you to know it too. We want to be able to fellowship with you. The Greek word is koinia, which means to be just as committed to one another as you are to Christ. He said, I want us to be family in relationship with the Father, the Son, and each other and so yeah I'm going to announce this to you I'm going to write this to you I'm going to use every communication method if Instagram existed back then he said I'm going to tell my Instagram story to you he'd have found a way to get the message to them I want you to know this why so that we can have fellowship and so that our joy will be full that's what he says when you when you share when you Testify when you become a good witness of the experience that you've had with Jesus Christ. You have fellowship with those you tell, and your joy quotient goes off the map simply because you've shared what you've experienced. Put it in practical terms. How many of you love to tell good news? Anybody here love to tell good news? When my boys were growing up, Kim and I had three sons, and when they were growing up, uh, I'd, I'd be off on a trip somewhere. We were in the, in, on the mission field, and I'd go off on a trip. I'd be gone for several days. I'd come in, and it would be not unusual for me to come home, and all three boys start run, come running at me and, and f- get into a fight with each other of who got to tell me some good news that happened while I was gone. I'm going to tell it. No, I'm going to tell it. I'm going to tell it. We've got eight grandkids now. You can imagine with eight grandkids <laughs> getting in a fight with each other, talking about who, who gets to tell the good news. They love, the people love to tell good news, which causes me to stop. It begs the question, if, if you're not excited to tell the good news, is it possible that you've forgotten how good the good news is? If this isn't bursting out of you at every moment, is it possible that maybe you've never actually heard, seen, looked at, and touched him? That maybe you have mental assent to Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior, and I need a Savior, and I've confessed my sins, but you've never actually experienced him? Or maybe you did a long time ago, and it's just become kind of rote now, and, and yeah, yeah, I went to church, yeah, I dropped... My tithe, I gave my tithe. Yeah, sure, of course I did that. Yeah, I'm on a serve team. Yeah, yeah, I, I have some friends at church. Yeah, I, yeah, I do the things that Christians do. But somewhere along the way, the, the excitement of that relationship has become kind of flat. I'm not trying to challenge anybody this morning other than to say, give some thought to it if you... If you're not bursting to tell the good news, you might need a refresher on how good the good news is. The book of Revelation talked to the church at Ephesus. It said, you've forgotten your first love. You need to do your first works over again. You need to go back and go back to where it started. Which leads us to the second requirement of being a good witness. You've got to have something of value to share, but then you also have to be willing to share it. This is simple stuff. This is not rocket science, but it's critical that we understand it. Go back to the courtroom scene with me. Imagine the attorney calling you as the next witness, and, and you, you, know, you solemnly affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. I do. But then you take the stand, and you just sit there and smile. And the attorney comes over and starts asking you questions, and, and you don't say anything. And the attorney finally says, well, you know, I, I really, I, Your Honor, could you instruct a witness to answer my questions? 
And so he asked the question again. And your response was, uh, you, see, you see my courtroom outfit? I bought this new outfit just to come to court today. Doesn't it look good? I probably dress better than anybody else here. Yeah, it's a nice outfit. Uh, but can you tell us what you witnessed on the day of the incident? Well, have you heard me sing the national anthem? I mean, when they played it, I was singing along. Could you hear me? Yeah, you got a really nice voice. But uh, uh, what I need you to do is tell me what you saw on the day of the event. Well, uh, you, you might say, well, you know, there are people that, that saw more than I did. They have a better testimony than I do. Maybe you ought to hear from them instead of me. I hear Christians all the time say, well, you know, I just don't have a testimony. Uh, you know, this guy uh, was saved from alcoholism or drug abuse or, or, or this marriage was restored or, or their self-esteem was, was in the, down the tubes and, and God restored their confidence or and it's just a depression and he broke them out of depression. They were sick and God healed them. and all the, I, I hear all those testimonies. I just don't have a powerful testimony like that. Somebody else ought to be the one that's giving their testimony because I don't, I don't have a testimony like that. I need you to understand that you don't have to have a dramatic testimony to have a powerful testimony. Well, I got three amens over here. You don't have to have a dramatic testimony to have a powerful testimony. Um, Fact is, everybody's going to have their own perspective on the journey. And it's important that everybody share their perspective on the journey. This is huge, so lean in. I don't want you to miss this point before we get to the third requirement. Uh, uh, <coughs> this is critical. We think, well, they got a more powerful testimony. Let them speak. I'm going to sit over here. But the reason why an attorney will have several witnesses who will come and give their perspective on the story is that it takes several witnesses and several perspectives for the jury to be able to understand the full scope of what happened that day. Does that make sense? And so when you share your testimony, when you become a witness to others, as John was trying to witness to others, then you don't have to have a dramatic story. You just have to have your perspective on what happened. I, this is who I was, and then I met Jesus, and this is what's going on in my life since then. That's it. That's it. That's it. Because th- this is where it gets huge. If you, if you dial back, come on, come on back, okay? Everybody lean in. You got this? This is huge. I want you to get it. don't want you to miss this. It's not your job to close a deal that day. Got it? It's not your job to say, I'm not leaving here till you say yes to Jesus. Fact is, people that take that approach to sharing their testimony or witnessing have become kind of obnoxious about the whole thing. You ever ever met an obnoxious Christian? Don't look at them, but I mean, they just kind of, I'm going to close this deal before I leave. Turn or burn, die and fry while we go to the sky. Hit them with a two-ton Bible and just, you know, Don't you know you might go to hell tonight if you don't? I mean, just become obnoxious Christians. Oh, man, if that's what Christianity is, sign me up for that. I like to be obnoxious too. Look at what the scriptures say. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. I like the way the Living Bible paraphrases it. My work was to plant the seed in your hearts. Apollos' work was to water it. But it was God, not we, who made the garden grow in your hearts. You understand what he's saying? He's saying there are lots 
of testimonies that were a part of helping the Christians in the church at Corinth come to that moment that God brought the increase to the word that was planted in their hearts. Not a single one of them had the full scope of responsibility nor authority in that circumstance. But a whole host of people doing their part in the journey ultimately is what brought them to where God could plant a garden in their hearts. Um, in the church world, we call that evangelism. We call that evangelical efforts. And every now and then someone will say to me, Pastor Jim, you, you obviously have the gift of evangelism. So many people have gotten saved in your ministry over the years. And, and you know what my answer to that is? No, I really I don't believe that I have the gift of evangelism. I, I believe perhaps I have the gift of pastor, maybe the, the gift of teacher, but I don't believe I have the gift of evangelism. I, what I believe is I have the gift of harvester. What's a harvester do? Does the harvester plant the seeds? Does the harvester cultivate the, the land? Does the harvester water the plants? Does the harvester put the fertilizer down? What does the harvester do? Harvester comes when it's ready to pick and just picks gathers the harvest. So I get the credit for evangelism when all I'm doing is saying, hey guys, you ready? When in fact you, 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 and you are the evangelists that have been telling your story that have brought them to that place that God can do something amazing in their lives. But, 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 but Jim, if I, if I, if I try to engage somebody in a conversation about my journey, my story, aren't are they going to ask questions that, that I don't have answers to? I mean, I've actually had people call me and say, Pastor Jim, I met somebody in the grocery store, and I believe if you'll talk to them, they'll get saved. I said, why didn't you talk to them? All right? Well, I, I just I didn't know how. I didn't know, I didn't know how to answer their questions. I didn't know what to come up with. Can I tell you that nobody has ever been argued into the kingdom once? Since Jesus was on earth, there is no argument to get people to get saved. And if you believe somehow that you've, that you've got to have the right argument and the right answers, then you have taken on the responsibility for their salvation and you are not their savior, Jesus is. Your job is what? First Peter chapter three, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. That's your job. Whose job is it to bring them to that moment where they say yes to Jesus? That's his job. Evangelism isn't about having all the answers. It's about being willing to tell what you heard, what you saw, what you gazed on, what you experienced. To testify, to be a witness God will never hold you responsible for something that you can't do, but he will hold you responsible for not being prepared to give an answer, a reason for the hope that you have. Here's what I want you to get. Somehow or another, this idea has come around, in, in recent years especially, that people just don't like to talk about God anymore. You know, if I start, if I bring up the God thing and, you know, people get kind of nervous and anxious and sometimes they'll even come after me. And so I just, you know, people don't even like to talk about God anymore. And the truth is, lean in, here's the truth. The truth is God is talking to people all the time. 
everywhere you go and everybody you encounter, God is talking to them all the time. Even those who push back if you bring the subject up, God is talking to them all the time. So if you just get the understanding that I'm not trying to make something happen, I'm just joining the conversation that God is already having with this person. And I'm understanding that I am maybe planting a seed or I'm watering the seed that's been planted. I'm coming along, being a part of the journey, helping them come to that place that they finally will listen to what God is saying to them. This person may well come to know Jesus Christ. That, that mindset alone changes everything in terms of the pressure of will I be a good witness? Will I testify at all? I've, I've told some of you before, one of my favorite things to do is go to a restaurant and, and when it's, we, we place our order and, and the waiter or waitress comes by the table and, and we're, you know, we're, we get our drinks or whatever, the food's there. And I'll say, you know what, I don't want to embarrass you in any way, but, but we're, we're about to pray over our meal. Uh, is there any way that we could pray for you? I don't think I've ever had one turn me down. Sometimes they just say, well, sure, that'd be nice. Uh, tell me your first name again. Okay, so we'll, we'll go pray for you, okay? Some will actually give me something to pray about. Can I ask for, uh, is there anything specific you'd like for us to pray about? And they'll do that. I've had some of them sit down across the table and pour their lives out right there. It's, God is talking to people all the time. All you're doing is joining the conversation, maybe planting a seed, maybe watering a seed that's already been planted, depending on God to give the increase. The mindset that it's all up to you to close the deal ultimately just forces you to try to force an issue. I can't tell you the number of wives, especially, I've seen some husbands too, but the number of wives over the years who wanted desperately for their husbands to come to Christ and they would come to me for advice and I would say, quit trying to get him to come to church. Quit trying to get him to have a family altar. Quit trying to get him to read Christian literature. Live your Christian life in front of him. Start doing some things with him that don't violate your own morals and ethics. You know, say, okay, tell you what, I'll do this with you. I'll go to the game with you if you'll come to church with me. You know, it's a bargain. You know, just, but quit pressuring. Quit trying to make it happen. I can't tell you the number of times that I have wives come back to me and say, you know what, it worked. Six weeks, eight weeks later, he's here, he's here. We're praying, and those husbands come to Christ when the wives start stop pressuring them to come to Christ. The bottom line is this. Somebody said it this way. The problem is that there are far too many Arctic River Christians. They're frozen at the mouth. To testify has, being a good witness has three requirements. Requirement number one is you've got to have an experience worth sharing. Maybe that's where you start. Requirement number two is you've got to be willing to share your story. Think about it simply. And then number three, finally, you've got to make God's top priority your top priority. 
And what is God's top priority? I can tell you from Scripture, God's top priority is, is reaching out to the people that are still lost. When Jesus had the opportunity to define God's top priority, he jumped at the chance. Luke chapter 15, that whole chapter is Jesus responding to what's God's heart, what's his top priority. And he tells the story of a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. In every one of those cases, the answer was the same. They were ultimately found, but they would not stop until they found those people who were lost. Luke chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. So Jesus used this illustration. If you had 100 sheep and one of them strayed away and was lost in the wilderness, wouldn't you leave the 99 others and go and search for the lost one until you found it? I've had people say, wait a minute, he's going to abandon the 99 and just leave them to their own devices while he goes find the one? Well, we just finished a series on Psalm 23. You, you know what happened. The flocks are all in the pasture. There's shepherds all around. At the end of the day, the shepherds call and the sheep know their shepherd's voice and they go to their shepherd. And so one shepherd says to the other, guys, I've lost one of mine. Can you keep an eye on my guys while I go find him? And they do. And he goes off and finds the one that was lost. And then verse 7, well, in the same way, heaven will be happier when one lost sinner who returns to God over the 99 others who haven't straight away, he comes back with the lamb over his shoulders and everybody breaks into applause. Everybody gets excited, which is why when we do baptismal services here, we're singing, we're worshiping, but half of us are, half of us are going, yeah, because there's a party going on in heaven and we're just joining the party. That's what's going on. Bottom line, you can't be a good witness unless you make this a top priority in your life. You just won't. You'll keep putting it off. You'll keep finding reasons not to. You'll talk yourself out of saying anything. But if you understand that this is God's top priority and you've had an experience with him, you're willing to share your experience with him, you make it your priority. You will be amazed. I kid you not. You will be amazed at the opportunities that he will bring to you. Your job is not to close the deal. Every now and then, you'll be at the right moment at the right time where somebody else is watered and somebody else is planted and somebody else is cultivated, and they will be ready. Pastor Andy was in a hospital room this week. He said two people came to Christ. Well, there was a whole lot of planting and watering going on before Andy got to go there and pray that prayer. Every now and then, you get to be a part of that prayer, and it is, ah, when that happens. But everybody that's been in that chain is just as much a part of that celebration as anybody else. Pastor and Christian writer Clayton King writes it this way, the father loves us all equally, but the lost are his priority. I got to close, but let me close with this story because <laughs> it's, it's such a powerful story that I read just recently. Some of you know the name Chris Hodges. Chris is the senior pastor <coughs> of uh, Church of the Highlands in Alabama. Phenomenal ministry. It's done a phenomenal work across Alabama, Mississippi. I think 13 or 14 locations now, 60,000 in their Easter services on the weekend. Thousands of people coming to Christ. Pastor Chris has a son, Joseph, uh, who's autistic. And the Hodges and a couple other families went on vacation together uh, one time, and he tells a story about they went to a coffee shop, and, and, uh, and of course, there's several people in there, about 20 or so in their group, and, and so they got kind of scattered, and, and when they left the coffee shop, they, they went out to the right and then realized that Joseph was not with them, and they panicked. Because of his autism, they knew that he wouldn't handle 
being away from the group very well. And if he was thrown into a difficult circumstance, he would, he would act out. And he was not able to communicate. He was non-communicative. And so they knew it was going to be a crisis. And, and Pastor Chris tells the story about the, the anguish and the, uh, and the fear that just overwhelmed him and this idea of what's going on with my son. And, and so everybody dropped everything. He said those, those 25 minutes waiting to find Joseph were the most agonizing 25 minutes of my life. I'm sobbing and crying, walking up and down the streets in Colorado. And when Joseph saw me 100 yards or so away, and yelled, Dad. I looked and saw him crossing over to where I was. And in that moment, Pastor Chris says, in that moment like never before, I understood how passionately God the Father seeks the lost. In losing Joseph, I was the father who lost something of great value. And everything stopped. Until I found him. Chris has other children. Think about the absurdity if his, if, if his other children had come to him and said, look, Dad, okay, well, we've lost Joseph, but you still got three more. You see, in that moment, that would have been an absurd thing to say because one was lost. Next week, we're going to talk about some of the elements of being effective in this journey. For now, I just want to close with a question. You're called to testify. The subpoena's been issued. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. The only question is, will you be a good witness? Will you join the ranks of the witnesses? Will you be a part of the search party? Will you testify? Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us this morning in what is often a difficult subject for even the most dedicated Christians, this idea of stepping out of our comfort zone, having a conversation that we're not sure where they are in their spiritual lives about spiritual things. So Holy Spirit, we're asking that you would speak to each of our hearts and show us where we are in this journey and who we are in this journey and, and how prepared we are to give a reason for the hope that we have and how willing we are to look for the opportunities to share that hope. Speak to us today, Lord, and then use us to reach the people that are your top priority. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. Help us to join the search party. In Jesus' name. Keep your heads bowed for just a second. I'm not going to keep you long, but I do want to go back to that first requirement. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. I'm not going to single you out, but I do want you to ask yourself that question again. Have I, have I had an experience? Have I heard, seen, gazed upon and touched Jesus? If not, am I willing to? Am I hungry to? Do I want to? Or if I did a long time ago and somehow I've forgotten how powerful that experience was, can you help me now to experience you again in a fresh way? 
to come to that place again where I hear your voice and I see you. I stare at you because I can't take my eyes off of you and I feel your embrace. Bring me to that place, Lord. Forgive me for getting distracted with other things. Bring me to that place right now. My promise to you, Lord, is that I will share my story with whatever opportunities that come along. It's in your name we pray, the lovely name of Jesus. And all God's people said,